Hi folks, the podcast you're about to hear uh, was recorded live in the Sugar Club with, uh, in front of a brilliant audience on last Sunday evening. Uh, it's the first ever live police podcast and Vicky Conway um, sat down with Selena and Louise McDermott who lost their three siblings in the Stardust fire. Um, they talk about the, that, the impact that had on their family. Also on stage were, was Senator Lynn Boylan, who has campaigned for a number of years to help the families, and Solicitor Dara Mackin, who represents many of them, and they discuss both the personal impacts and the ways the state has failed the families in previous investigations and the problems in the upcoming inquest. Um, it was a brilliant night, uh, and it was Vicky's first ever live podcast. She got a standing that the, the panel got a standing ovation at the end, and it was a privilege to be there to hear Selena and Louise talk about their um their family and the impact they've had and the resilience and hope. So I hope you really enjoy this. There is a call to action. We would like you to all email the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee. The, the email address is on this podcast, and we would like you to say that this inquest needs to be done correctly. It has to be done fairly for the 48 who never came home. Without further ado, I'll turn you over to that podcast, that live recording. Okay, yes, yeah, first live podcast, so be nice. Um, I am, like, beyond honoured to do this podcast tonight. Police is really important to me. I've been in spaces like... I've been in weird positions like members of commissions and, and state bodies and stuff where policing and police reform has been discussed. And it genuinely got to me that people's ex- day-to-day experiences of the power of the state weren't at the heart of these discussions. And that's why I wanted to start Policed in Ireland um, because I had spoken to so many people about their experiences and knew the depths of what the state can bring people to um, and how it can bring people to their knees and it doesn't even seem to listen and sometimes it feels like it doesn't care. Um, And I suppose tonight isn't a a usual policed podcast. We're expanding it somewhat to consider that idea of what the state does and how the state treats people by focusing on a really immediate and urgent issue, um, which is that of the Stardust Fire. Um, and I'm incredibly honoured to be discussing this tonight. And as you'll hear, you know, I'm, I'm going to make a plea at the end for the things that I want you to do and that I'm sure the others will as well. And this Stardust is this astounding event in Ireland, which just... I was actually speaking to my mother today about doing this. And we hadn't actually talked about Stardust before. And she recalled to me, she's like, I remember that night so vividly, Valentine's Day 1981. And Valentine's Day is actually would have been my parents' wedding anniversary. And she's like, I remember we had a dinner and I got up the next morning and I remember turning on the radio and hearing it. And she said, I can still right now feel the way the dread seeped through my body, um, thinking about what had happened and the, the scale of devastation and loss and the families that went through it. And like, I'm the lefty liberal black sheep of my family. And she said, but I agree with you on this one. This one is so criminal and how, how that hasn't been the case and the experience is unreal. And so I think we have, we probably have a mix in the audience tonight of people that remember that. I've already was chatting to Noelle Brown earlier and she was recalling her memory of that night. Um, and I'm, people of a certain age will have those memories and others don't. And yet they, they hear the story and it's just palpable shock of how this happened in Ireland, how 48 Young people that were out for a fun night never came home, um, in Christy Moore's immortal words, and the over 200 others that were injured, and the, the legacy of families, and the hurt and trauma, and how the state has blocked access to the truth at every corner. So it is an incredible privilege to me to be trusted by this panel of speakers to discuss this issue tonight. Um, First up, join me on the stage, please. Um, Selena and Louise McDermott from the families as they'll talk about themselves. They'll talk themselves about their own experiences uh, and the loss, the 
unimaginable loss their families faced. Uh, we're joined also by Senator Lynn Boylan, who has, I know... Just even the way these wonderful women speak um, about Lynn and, and the support and work she's done for the families. And we'll talk about a bill that she's introduced that's really important in this space. And we're also joined, our, our token man for the panel, uh, <laughs> you know, International Women's Day is on Tuesday. These things are important. Um, Dara Mackin, who is acting as a solicitor. solicitor for the families in their current quest for truth as their their t-shirts tell us um and you know has been really important in, in the work and struggle as it stands so i'll take a seat now um selena i might start with you yeah can you tell me about your family i will um first of all just to tell everybody my sister marcella it was her birthday yesterday yeah. so just have a drinking horse. So Mar- Marcella, yeah. who passed away, and as we'll hear in a moment, Selena and Louise lost three siblings at the Stardust fire, and actually all of them have birthdays in March. They do. Um, yeah. So yeah. can we have a little happy birthday toast yeah. to the family? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah um, Willie was 22, um, George was 18, and Marcella was 16, and the three of them died that night, that horrific, the horrific, horrific fire. But, um, yeah, so they all had, like, busy lives, you know, and even uh, listening to David talking about the 80s yeah. and the music, yeah. it, was, it was amazing because there was, music was a big thing in our home, and uh, I still actually have all their vinyl records and their 45s and, you know, the selector and all the ska thing and that. But, yeah, but they had um, uh, three very different individuals, yeah. but uh, they were great fun. They had jobs. And um, Willie, 22, literally had just um, passed his driving license. And he actually got the driving license, came to the house a week after he had passed. So he never got to, you know, to see it. And um, George um, was in uh, Anko. And um, he was also doing a little bit of work. And then Marcella worked in Duns. She was in school and then had a part-time job in Duns. Yeah. And were they like the annoying big brothers and sisters or? Yeah, they, well, you know, I was the youngest, so okay. of eight. So my mother had eight. So I was the youngest and Willie was the eldest. So um, and I think that night my mom always said that because um, it took a while for them to be found. Mm. So they were days and days looking for them. And but when my mother heard that Willie um, was found and he, he, he was dead, she knew that the other two weren't coming home. She said, um, once she heard that, she said, the other two aren't coming home. Yeah. And it was was mad because that night that it happened, um, Willie, we knew that Willie went to the Stardust. Yeah. He had had planned to go to the Stardust. And he got all suited up. And and the last thing my mother did for Willie was he couldn't knot his tie. (laughs) So she, you know, she was happening with his tie. And that was the last thing she did for him. And then George, we also knew he was definitely going to the Stardust. And um, he was meeting a girl from the country in the Stardust. Now, later on, we found out, like, she actually died as well. But um, anyway, yeah, he was all excited because my mad bought him a new shirt. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, you know, he was all ready to go. But my dad came in and um, he came home from work. And uh, he wanted a chipper up in Edenmore, <laughs> chips. And he said, well, you run up and get me fish and chips. And George was like, oh, Jesus, Dad, like, I'm going to the Stardust, you know. And my mom was like, just go up and keep him quiet. Run up and get him the chipper. So he ran up and he came back and uh, he got his new shirt on him and then flew. And my mom just hugged him and said, enjoy your night. Yeah. And then Marcella um, told my mom and dad that she was babysitting. And um, and her two pals as she went with Donna Matten, which also died, and then Shirley Dillon from Edenmore Crescent, or the drive. Um, they also told their parents that they were babysitting with Marcella. But I, uh, she told me that she was going to Stardust because I had her bag of clothes, you know, the little white lie, <laughs> we all do it. Yeah. And I had her bag of clothes to change into in, hid in the alley 
because we had like a little alio. And so I knew she was going to the Stardust. Yeah. So on the night that it happened, um, it was after one o'clock and there was chaos. And I was up in my sister's house that lived a door away. And um, my mother and father ran into the house and they said there's a fire in the Stardust. And you have to remember as well, sort of in Edenmore, it was a cully sack, Edenmore Crescent. And, um, but everybody was out on the road because yeah. nearly every second house had somebody that was in the Stardust. Yeah. So it was chaos. Um, and no, there's no phones. Uh, only every odd person had a car. You, you know, like the bleak 80s again, it was, it was very much like that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so my dad ran into it and he said, right, we need everybody to, Search to get up to the Stardust. Um, Willie and George are there and Marcella, we know Marcella's babysitting. And then I had to tell him that, no, I said, she's not babysitting. And, um, he ran over to me and picked me up. And my dad was, uh, he, he was a fireman and he worked in D Watch and Tower Street. And my dad was like, he was a big man, was he? About six, six, six or six, seven. He would be a huge man. And he was off duty that night. And that's why that also killed my father, because he always said if he had been there, he would have got them out. But anyway, and yeah, so he just picked me up and shook me and said, what the fuck are you, do you mean? What the fuck do you mean? She's like, she's gone to Stardust. And I said, no, her, Donna, and Shirley are gone to Stardust. Um, I hid her clothes and yeah. So he just dropped me and everybody just ran out. What age were you then? I was 11. 11. Yeah, and then it was just like absolute chaos. It was just chaos because they were looking for them for days. Like they didn't just, when they didn't just find out that the, their three children had died, they couldn't find them. They didn't know where they were. They were going to morgues. They were going to hospitals. They were, everybody had different sightings. Um, or we think he got out or we think she got out or, you know, so it was chaos, absolute chaos, you know. What's your memory of that night, Louise? Exactly, sorry, exactly like Selena's. Um, I was in the house when the knock came at the door. So it was like half one and bang, bang on the door. It was one of um, Willie's friends um, saying that they hear, they hear. And my mother and father obviously didn't know what was going on. It was just like that chaos. Um, so all I remember then was them running out up to my sister's and that was it. We didn't see them then till the morning. And then after that, it was just the following few days was just a blur. It was just yeah. a nightmare. You know, we knew eventually after things we found, Willie got out, but went back for the others. So we knew he'd, he'd got out then and twice, and but went back, but obviously didn't survive. Um, and then, like Selena said, when we were just sitting around waiting, none of us could do anything. Yeah. You know, so we just had to wait when one was got. Then when Willie was found, we knew the others weren't coming home. And then it was then trying to identify the the others. So like, don't forget when when the fire happened, um, that site wasn't sealed off. That site was like people could walk on that site and the guards could walk on that site. Like, you know, it it was a coin was put down to identify where each person was, yeah. not even a person, bits of people. And I know it's terrible to say that, but that's what yeah. was left of them. Yeah. You know, so it, it took a long, long time then weeks to identify. Marcella was our, our sister. She was the last of, of heirs to be identified and only that she had, um, dental work done on her and her teeth a few months before that's the only reason she was identified or she would have been put into the grave with the five unidentified and that's what we were kind of left with you know there's so much in all of that I mean I'm pretty sure everyone here can probably relate to those stories you know like the picture you paint of your siblings like one of them trying to get his tie right and the other with the new shirt out to meet the girl and the excitement that must have been there and like who hasn't lied to their parent as a 16 year old to get out to mm -hmm. a night out you know mm -hmm. it's just so everyday and ordinary and that's like kids are in the country every single Friday and Saturday night right like it's so ordinary and then you take like what transpired like we'll get into so much of the detail around that but like 
even that point of how unprepared the state was to deal with a tragedy like this. Um, you know, I was even like obviously going back over stuff this afternoon and you hear the stories of like taxi drivers coming along to take victims and, mm-hmm. you know, take them places and Dublin buses being brought in to remove people to different places. And the idea like taking days and weeks to identify people. Yeah, mm-hmm. Vicky, I remember um, uh, even talking about that because my dad was a fireman. Mm-hmm. Um, after when it happened, um our house was constantly foot. There was just people in the garden, in the house, out the back garden, all the time, every day, because it was just mental. It was just crazy. Um, like the doctors wanted to, wanted to sedate my mother. Yeah. Um, thank God my other eldest sister, Breed, she took sort of control that she, she, they wouldn't let uh, the doctors do that to her in a sort of way and stuff like that. And then you had like, um, my mother was blaming my father, saying, uh, well, you should have been working. You should have been on duty that night. You should have got them out. You should have been there. Then you had my father blaming my mother, saying, well, um, well, why did you let them go? You should have known that Marcella was ba- wasn't babysitting. And so then you had all that sort of um, uh, trauma, chaos yeah. Yeah. in the house. And it was, it was just mad. And then, and then trying to deal with uh, grief. And like we didn't go to school for it would have been probably about a year we didn't go to school because we were um, looking after my mother, basically. She locked herself in a room, in a bedroom. That was it. She just locked herself. Because they told my mother, actually, Charlie Bird always says this, and he was very, very shocked when he was in my mother's home, when he was doing the documentary. Yeah. Um, and she said to me, you know, she said, Charlie, um, they told me I was going mad. They told me I was going mad. And she said, I kept on saying no. I'm not mad. I've lost three children. Yeah. And again, that was, again, like, it was the state again because they, uh, we, there was definitely no counselling. We never got counselling. Uh, there was no support. Nobody knocked at our door. Uh, I remember one teacher knocked on the door, but that was about it because uh, we were never in school. And so there was no support system there ever set up after the Stardust. So even after all the funerals, like 48 children after all the funerals it went then um even the areas in Kulak Artane um all over it went very quiet really 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 quiet and then nobody then came and knocked on our our doors because it wasn't their fault we got a lot of help from uh, our neighbors but then all of a sudden it what else do they do there was nothing else they could they didn't know how to talk to us about it or and you know then like that my dad my father most of the time would close the door on people's faces, wouldn't he? Because he didn't want to have to deal with... Yeah. They put my yeah. mother... Um, that we, there's a Fran- St. Francis little... Yeah. Not the hospice, it's St. Francis daycare centre in uh, Murhini. And yeah. they sent her there for a couple of months. And they actually... That's what Charlie would... They couldn't believe this. They actually put a white coat on her yeah. and told her to sit at a table and sew little crochet... Um, things together and that would that would keep her sane and that would be okay and that's when she said no she said I I don't want to be here I just I'm just looking for help I want to talk to someone and that that was the only ever ever thing anyone from the Stardust got any of the families got help and that was it the furthest from the trauma-informed care that Austin was just talking about, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, yeah. and it just, it's that re-victimization by the state that just reimposes further trauma. To be mm-hmm. told that you're mad when you are mm-hmm. legitimately, like, mm-hmm. and, you know, I've spoken to people about doing this panel this evening and, you know, a common reaction is like, how do people get out of bed? How do you carry on? Like we look now at our mother and we go, how did you? Yeah. Like how, and I mean, there was a time where, and she's not ashamed to say it, and she would say it now. Like, and she would say to us, there was a time where we did find her in the alio, and she wanted to end her life. And we said, to her, well, what about us? Yeah, you know, who look after us? And she says that kind of made her wake up and kind of think, no, well, I, I do have other ch- other children. We were the youngest, and the other two were the oldest, and we had yeah. a brother as well who took it r- really, really hard, you know. And um, he lost his only two brothers, you know, his best yeah. friends. And that kind of made her think, no, she, no, I'm, I'm going to go on. If that was the next five years. The f- five years after that was the most traumatic part, you know, 
and somehow she managed to get through it, you know, and she's, thank God, she's 85 now in January and she's still here, you know, well, and sure she's still, guys... um, f- still fighting as we're, we're all still fighting. Yeah. You know, I was just going to say there when Louise just there, I think that's what, um, what helped my mother as well was after, Years of, of the trauma and everything and trying to, um, uh, live. She just wanted them yeah. to survive then for us. So, and then when she did, then it was the fight. That was the big fight then, um, yeah. to try and get, uh, justice. Um, because, and that's when the first tribunal in 1981. Yeah. And just, we actually even have a footage of my mom, like, and, and Antoinette Keegan, Chrissy Keegan, just loads of the parents there. Yeah. And they're all at the first tribunal. And but when when the findings came out that it was probable arson, well, that was just like that was just devastating, devastating because it, it labelled um, her three children as arsonists in yeah. that building, yeah, as well as everybody else and the survivors, yeah. So um, that's when then the big fight had to start to try and fight for a, a new inquest into the findings of how the fire started. And I you know, think and that's, that was the push that, and I sort of kept her, um, going for them to get justice for the three, ch- her three children. Cause my, my mother hasn't got a proper coroner's report. It's in the, it's in the, the, it's by law, your right to have a proper coroner's, uh, report of any debt of anybody's, anybody's debt. We don't have one for George William Marcella. Yeah. And this is what we're still fighting for. Yeah. We want to know exactly how they died, where they died, what, but we don't have it. And the state Mm. won't give us. So we're saying, why, what are you hiding? Why, why won't you give it to us? Because we know, we know the evidence that the fire didn't start in the, in the West Alcove. We know it came from the, the rooftop. Yeah. And we have the evidence there. And this is why Dara and, Lynn and all are involved, you know, like we had the evidence there, but they, they were working class, came from a very working class, um, background. Um, yeah. my mother and father didn't have the money to fight the state. And they do you not- feel like class is part of this? Oh my God, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. So when probable arson was, when they said it was probable arson, the man in question who owns the Sargis, sure, he turned around to Chrissy Keegan and said, sure, didn't I told you I'd win? to their faces you know like that just shows you what sort of a person and the connections he obviously has in the state that we're that we're fighting for still fighting for 41 years and there's so much in all of this that obviously we can't we're not going to get through everything tonight but like I think you know you talk about five years of trauma and I think one of the things you know you have 48 people died and all of their families and friends grieving Mm -hmm. You have over 200 people that were seriously injured, but there were over 800 people there that night and all of their trauma from being even near that, um, is astounding. And, you know, I, I, I've read that it's known that over 25 people, um, that were there in the night have attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Have, yeah. And that number is yeah. probably way higher, right? And we just don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's really important, that scale of what happened. And then, like you mentioned, the Keane Tribunal, mm-hmm. um, Ronan Keane, who later became Chief Justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that happened with, started what, within two weeks? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ronan so, Keane, yeah. who's, was yeah. it Ronan Keane, whose wife was his, Charles Hawhey was, has, who was he? What's, what was the relationship with Charles Hawhey? It was all, Charles Hawhey was having an okay, affair we'll, with his okay, we'll, we'll, sister and. We'll the avoid the libelous stuff or no. Dragging up the dirt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah. you can see where all the little connections were. But like when the, you take the fact, like you were saying, within weeks, like your siblings hadn't even been identified and already we have a tribunal started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like that to me sounds like we know we need to do something, so let's just do it and move on. Yeah. It was a whitewash. It was yeah. a complete whitewash. It was it was dreadful. It was just so how how could you how could you even have um uh how could you even focus on trying to uh sit at a tribunal and and when you've 
it was you've only literally buried your children yeah. like you know and you're still you're still going through an enormous amount of grief yeah and um and then they but they they knew what they were doing you sure charlie hockey was best friends with eamon bushley that oh he owned a property and all with eamon bushley sir it was you yeah. know and even i mean obviously my policing head always goes to like god forbid we'd have actual crime scene analysis but as you say it wasn't treated like a crime scene no 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 there was even there's even pictures now that you can go on to uh, you can google and you see kids the next day and they are running around on the on this in the scene in the stardust yeah. playing with all the you know like uh burnt chairs tables and stuff and uh the policeman sort of weren't equipped they didn't know they said he didn't know what way to handle it and yeah at the end of the day it was the biggest disaster in the history of the state, state yeah and they went around so what they were doing if they thought it was uh, a leg or an arm and it's horrific to say it's a long time actually since we could actually even talk like this yeah. but um they would take out coins and put down a coin to to say well um instead of a mark for a marker really you know but there was kids in the background all like um running around the scene yeah. you know sure my god like and even like you know, the witnesses hadn't been gathered properly like you made the point yeah. about where the fire started and how integral yeah. that was to the findings and like just that point you make about the finding that this was probably arson yeah like and that that puts the blame elsewhere on some unknown and sure yeah. probably this case i mean i'm sure lots of people are thinking of hillsborough yeah and exactly yeah. yeah yeah and the efforts yeah. there to blame the fans yeah. and push that blame onto young hooligans yeah. um and i can't only imagine how hurtful that was to families but sure vicky even even um on that on the first tribunal in 81, um, they had uh, the map of the Stardust and they said, and in, in that map, in that tribunal, there was a basement. There was never a basement in the Stardust. Never a basement in the Stardust. Um, there was, uh, so everything was flawed straight away from yeah. the first tribunal. You know, um, I actually had, my mother had the original blueprints of the Stardust hid in her underneath in her bedroom underneath the floorboards <laughs> like <laughs> i think of it like you know crazy stuff that people just would not believe well that level they of paranoia be, that know has I mean? to come in from those experiences yeah yeah and they were the original um blueprints because um the first tribunal um uh lied about every from the yeah just lied about the whole thing you know because they're working class people uh they don't have the money to sue we'd have to keep them quiet um you know, so and you know they they wouldn't be able to fight this, yeah. you know, because of the, the the people in power at the time, um, you know, the Bushleys, Charlie High, the crew, you know, like. So how did you all come together, the families, and and begin? Like, where do you even start with that? With st- well, it yeah. started straight it started, away. It started straight away at, the, at, at that at that at the tribunal. Well, probable arson. Was, probable arson, yeah. and then we go no, and then. Mr. Keegan as well, and all the other families, lots of other families as well. The Frenches got, they aren't even alive now. Lots of families back then were, were, were together. Yeah. And, um, just kept fighting and fighting. And then it was 28 years, wasn't it? When it was we had 28 years. Yeah. When the, um, when Paul Coffey then, um, finally ruled out 28 years of fighting and, um, in and out of the government buildings. And um, before they would remove probable arson. Mm. So, but three things came out of that. Okay. The first that um, the Paul Coffey report was that uh, probable arson was ruled out. Yeah. Great. It was brilliant. We were just, we're so, we were like, oh my God, now, now we're getting somewhere. But the second thing was that he also rejected uh, to have a public inquiry into how the fire started. So he's given us one thing, but taking it back in, yeah. a, in, another, in another sense. So he rejected that. And also the third thing was at the end of that report uh, with Paul Coffey was that they sort of said that more or less used the word a commission would be set up to follow, um, to follow the progress of the bereaved families and the um, survivors as regards to counselling, their mental health, mm-hmm. um, their uh, medical injuries if they need anything. And it was to be funded by the state. That never happened. Never happened. Never, ever, ever happened. You know? 
And then, so then after that then, it was still another fight after that 20 years, it was 28 years, it was still another fight then on the road to get uh, justice. And thank God, thank God, we bumped into Lynn Byron. How did <laughs> you get involved, Lynn? Um, well, it goes back, I suppose, for myself and, and Dara in Cairo when we were campaigning on another case with Ibrahim. And Dara asked me, did I know any of the Stardust families, because you had read the book, I think, and was saying, I really think that there's a, a good, strong legal argument here for justice. And I said, well, leave it with me, and I'll try and make contact. And at that stage, we, we didn't have success. But then I think when Ibrahim was released, uh, Antonia Keegan and June, your sister, contacted the office and said, you know, we really liked what you did in terms of that campaign. Is, is there any chance you'd sit down and talk to us and just give us advice on how we can, I suppose, just re-energize or just you know progress the the campaign for truth so uh, myself and Dara met with June and Antoinette that day and that's when Dara made the case about you know don't call for an inquiry call for an inquest and it's because of that and he'll explain it better than I but again that the similarities and the parallels between Hillsborough and the Stardust fire um, and the work, the class analysis and the way it was covered up and the way the blame was put back onto the community and so that's sort of where it all started in that one little meeting and this was my role and it was just, well, you know, how, how do you run a campaign? And, you know, the, the truth was where we came up with that, just a very simple message. You're not asking for anything special. And then from that then came the, the, the postcard campaign because one of the things when you talk to anybody and it was anybody of a certain age remembers the stardust yeah. you know and I, and I was four but my sister's that bit older they would go yeah no we remember the stardust and you know your your godfather was in the stardust that night and he escaped and so all of the stories start talking about people want to know how they can help and the problem is when you're asking for an inquiry or it, yeah. it's a high level thing that the public will go I, I support you but I don't know how I can actually yeah. do that so the postcard campaign was such a simple thing of signed this postcard it's saying truth to deliver a new inquest for the families and I think we ordered 5,000 postcards to start with yeah. <laughs> and we gave them out the, fam- the families all took them yeah. and Dublin Fire Brigade took them and then I was getting all these messages going yeah we know we need more postcards we were like we don't have more postcards so then the idea I said Dara do you think we'd get 48,000 like do you think and right we'll go for it and within weeks we had and we actually had to stop it because we had the symbolic 48,000, but we could have got 488,000, you know, it was just... I mean, yeah, the public yeah. are there, right? Are the politicians there? In fairness, I think um, there, there are some, some politicians who've been there. There's been some who've been there from the start. I mean, you know, you had Tommy Bruin, who was in before he retired from politics. Um, certainly Richard Boyd Barris would be very supportive you know there is Larry, this O'Toole. Larry O'Toole of course well I wasn't going to name all this, the shinners who are on board <laughs> I was trying to be diplomatic um but no there is you know uh, Catherine Murphy um Roshan so there's a lot of have come yeah. out um to support it and it was that point of it this is not party political this is about justice and families that have been put through the mill for 40 years and all they're asking for is an inquest that will say how did the fire start and how did their, their relatives uh, die that night. Um, so yeah, so there was there was huge support. I mean, and, and uh, Christy Moore, Charlie Bird, yeah. all of them signing the postcards yeah. and then of course we had that big day of delivering them to the, to the Attorney General, so... Yeah. I was really struck actually when Caroline started and we were saying this and she talks about, oh the 80s, how was that 40 years ago? And it's like, it's an insane amount of time to still be pursuing. And, it, you know, Hillsborough had happened a hell of a lot faster. Derek, can I ask you to, like, explain to... Because I actually, I started doing work on inquests after, as a member of the Commission of the Future Policing, I remember being at, a, at a, an event in Waterford and this man came up and he was insistent on talking to me and his daughter, who was heavily pregnant at the time, was killed in a car crash and... um he was talking about the inquest process and I was sitting there going, like, what? The, the guards handpicked the jury? What? Like, I, I couldn't believe it and I knew nothing about it. And I think inquests are like this black hole in legal systems that people know nothing about. So can you tell us why the inquest, like, what does it do? Why is it important? 
The inquest is obviously a process which investigates death, and for that reason is probably why we don't hear very much about it. Um, it is unfortunate that uh, we don't hear more about it because, mm. unfortunately, it speaks for itself, families only go there when they're at their most vulnerable. And it's so disappointing that we read day in, day out about the criminal justice process, we read about murder trials, we read about rape trials, and the reality is we don't read very much about inquests and the truth of the matter is they are as every bit important, if not more important, I dare say, than most criminal justice processes yeah. to many families. And I might view this case as a, an example on point. What we really have here is a situation where so many years later, we don't know what happened, we don't know what the truth is. In fact, it's much worse than that. As we've just heard, we have a situation whereby immediately after we get an investigation, the investigation says, well, this was done by arson. Somebody's responsible here. Then 20 years after that, we're told... Actually, we got that wrong. It wasn't arson, but we're not going to tell you what it was or who did it, because that's not my job. And then a couple of years after that, we get told, you know what, the families actually might be right. The fire might have started in the roof space. And you know what, see the evidence the families have produced, that actually might be right. But we're not going to investigate it. <laughs> Anybody, in my view, looking at that rationally, objectively, would look at that and go, why is there not an investigation? Yeah. Why, why can we leave something as serious as this, as significant as this, Effectively uninvestigated. That's what it is. So I think that this is a classic example of why an inquest is so important. And yeah. Vicky, you've mentioned a number of times tonight, Hillsborough, classic example. Yeah. In fact, we referenced it in the submissions in this case. The Ballamurphy inquest is another example. Um, I was privileged to be involved in that, and I've seen firsthand that even very many years later, the truth can be established. Yeah. Victims can be exonerated. Yeah. And this is exactly what this process is about. It's about providing a forum, in a, in a public forum, whereby families get to engage, they get to be part of the process, they get to call evidence, they get to challenge the evidence, they get to ask witnesses questions, they get to call expert evidence to allow a jury or, or a coroner in some instances to determine what happened. Yeah, and I think, you know, and all of that, like if people don't know, are direct obligations on the state under European Convention of Human Rights Law. Like the state has to have that type of investigation to, to satisfy its human rights obligations. And I think, like, just again, if people don't know, like with Hillsborough, there were so many important elements that came about through fresh inquests. One of them being, you know, the original inquest that everyone had died by was at 314, which meant that emergency services couldn't have got to them and couldn't have saved them. And the fresh inquests ruled, no, some of them were alive much later. And the failures in those response systems that we're, we've been talking about, you know, were, did cause deaths. And then, you know, findings of unlawful killings, which again, we'll come back to again. It's so, even if you don't get those criminal convictions, like, what would it mean to you to get an unlawful killing verdict, for instance, from the inquest? Do you allow yourself to think about it? Um, it's, that's actually mad because um, we're that long fighting now. Um, and um, so many barriers have always been put up. And um, with the families, uh, uh, the 40 families fighting for justice, that nothing phases us at this stage. Nothing. Okay. It's, like, it's like, you know, I, I think even when Dara got on board and Lynn... I think they were even shocked with certain things that were put up against, especially Dara. You just couldn't get over it because, um, and we were like, yeah, like, <laughs> this is what we've been trying to, to do for the, for, for over 40 years, On you know? Own. Yeah. And because like, as, as well as that, I suppose like it was the families that had to, um, uh, through the, over the 41 years, they had to like pay for, um, legal teams. They had to pay for, uh, legal experts. They had to pay for fire experts. They had to pay for, you know, going over to Germany, getting this, you know, that was all done through the families. Like, they never got any support from the state, you know. So, like, to um, to get justice now, to get justice now, we will get it. You will, will get it. Will. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> We're not going to stop. Uh, as, I, as we said before, um, uh, we've been really beaten and dejected by the state. We have. We have, absolutely we have, but we're not going to stop and we're not going away. So, you know, so to get justice, we're, um, we'll be just, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do, actually. I don't, my poor mother, if I, if I get justice, if we get justice from my mother, um, she's 85 now, God love her. She's 85, you know. Um, you know, she even had to fight, we were just talking about this, um, she even had to fight to, for her medical card. 
And they only gave it to her when she was um, 83 because she was nine euro 50 over. So, like, you know, and, and because she wouldn't, she would never, we used to actually laugh about this and go, Jesus, man, you just put down on the form, you're, you lost three children in the stardust, you know, like, I will not, she said, I'm entitled to that card regardless of stardust. Yeah. That's the way she is, you know. But uh, they yes, wouldn't so give it to her. They wouldn't give it to her. Like, <laughs> and I'm sure, <laughs> you know, this is a sadly familiar story, right? Magdalene Andre's mother and baby homes. Um, exactly. We, we've talked about it plenty of times in the podcast. Deny until they die, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, one of the things I suppose, and I mentioned the unlawful killing verdict, but of course we haven't talked about the scene um, yeah. inside Stardust. Um, I don't know, Dara Lynn, if you want to talk about you know, what are the issues around the the potential liability of the owners and what, what happened on the ground that night? <laughs> Give me the tricky questions, Lynn. Um, <laughs> the reality is that the case has always been from day dot that the stardust itself was a death trap for so many different reasons. Um, it's well known, it's well established that some of the fire exits were chained some of the fire exits were blocked. The, 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 the walls had carpet tiles on them that were meant for floors that were highly flammable. We know that the uh, storeroom and the uh, roof space had uh, huge volumes of cooking oil liquid that was being used in the kitchen. Uh, and it goes well beyond that. The reality is we know that there was complaints in the weeks before. We know that there was, uh, for example, there was bands who were playing who were complaining about sparks coming from lamps in the ceiling. We know that people who were there as recently as three weeks before, we're making complaints that the doors were locked. We know that there were staff members in the weeks before who actually resigned because they couldn't believe that it was somebody's job every night to check the doors were locked. And when you hear it all in those terms, it's no surprise that part of the case that we're now making, that we've always made, the families have always made, is that there are people who bear responsibility for this. Um, and they bear, they bear, that responsibility is spread across the spectrum. It's not, it's not, it's not just isolated, unfortunately. There are other people who bear considerable responsibility because, as we described it in the first, uh, preliminary hearing at the inquest, this was a state-sponsored cover-up. Yeah. Didn't start and end with one person. The reality is that there are a number of people who bear responsibility here. And that's the purpose of this process. It's to uncover the truth. It's to establish the truth to get justice for the families and that does come in the form of many ways and does come in the form of certain individuals and certain parties and certain people who may have to bear some responsibility yeah and like we know the the, the fire regulations weren't as as strong at that time and actually it was the star just that led to to changes in them but the like DCC or would have been Dublin City Corporation at the time like their inspector there was an inspector who was going regularly and was battling with the Butterleys at the time and saying, you know, you, you, the, the fire exits are blocked repeatedly, you know, the bars on the windows. Do you mean, but it was just going nowhere. And yeah. so there's all, there is all of that evidence, but it also even with the, the coffee report, I think it was, where they said there was a witness who rang yeah. a woman who had seen the fire in the roof yeah. at a certain time in the evening, which counter- contradicted all of the things that it had started, you know, in the West Alcove, that the fire was blazing away in the roof while everybody was still dancing in the stardust. And in that coffee report, it said, well, that if you can find that witness and interviewer, then maybe that yeah. would lead to further investigations. You're going, well, that witness is sitting there yeah. for the last 40 years waiting yeah. for someone to come and, and take Why wasn't she spoken evidence. to by the key yeah. tribunal? Yeah. And, and, and after the coffee report, yeah. why did nobody go and say, well, let's find this woman? You know, there has to be, as Dara said, an investigation on the back of all of that new evidence. So, so obviously, we all, and I think you can sense from the room, everyone hopes the inquests move towards finding that truth and justice, but... There have been significant barriers in even getting to that. Um, one of them, we know, has been the issue of legal aid. What's been happening with that, Tara? Well, this is a situation whereby, uh, in any inquest, unfortunately, there's not not a mark entitlement to legal aid, and families have to satisfy a test. Some of the, uh, in this case, if effectively you earn too much, you don't qualify for legal aid. Now, the the irony in this situation is the families yet again were put in a, in, a, in a tribunal, in an inquest, whereby everybody else had either the means to pay for mm-hmm. representation or they were state-funded. 
Now, the circumstances in which we also can't forget, and the context is important, that right back when the finding of arson was, was found in, at the t- after Akeem, the families got pittance as a result of, of, of the commission, whilst the owner got six figures in compensation. Now, that's in stark contrast to some families getting as little as €10,000. Yeah. Now, the reality is, not only do the families not have means, they've never had any means in terms of yeah. compensation or anything of any kind. What we did was we brought about a campaign, and again, <laughs> Lynn stepped into the arena, uh, and, and we brought, tried to bring about change to ensure that people would have equality of representation. And there was an amendment brought forward which allowed for, uh, regardless of your financial eligibility, regardless of how much you earned, that it would be waived and that the families would be entitled to equal representation to appear before the inquest. And thankfully, we did get over that hurdle. And like, But one of the ironies with that is that the RDS have been booked for holding the inquests. And how much has been spent on the RDS where no inquest has been held? 1.3 million euros. And the, the lease on that runs up pretty it's, soon, doesn't yeah, it? Yes, it's run up now, nearly so now. Over yeah, six yeah. days ago. Yes, yeah. yeah, happy yeah. to pay 1.3 million for a space that won't be used. It's mm-hmm. But it, it's even like with the amendment to the free legal aid, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a window into the mindset that is government and the civil servants that surround them, that it was specifically just an exemption for the stardust, yeah, not yeah. for anybody yeah. else. So that, the way, oh, heaven forbid, we would set a precedent that, you know, families going into an inquest would have free legal aid yeah. and the threshold is so low on it. Um, you know, but even when we then IFOI'd the correspondence that was going on in the civil service around all of that stuff, and it you can just, you read it, and it's, it's clear as day that they were looking, how do we keep the costs down? How do we stop? Yeah. Do you mean, and like not with the RDS and everything, it was always just about how do we minimise costs here? And of course you have to, it's public money, but at the end of the day, this is a 40-year battle that it's the families who've been out of pocket to find the evidence to get their own witnesses and still the state is going, how can we make sure we're not going to spend too much money on, on the free legal aid for families? It was, yeah, pretty incredible. There's two other kind of, I suppose, more technical points to, to address. Um, I might first ask Dara, the, so the Botterleys have initiated a judicial review um, of the inquest process. What, what are they looking for? So uh, we've been talking an awful lot tonight about unlawful killing, and one of the verdicts that a uh, jury can return uh, in a case like this uh, is unlawful killing. That's the verdict that was returned in Hillsborough. Um, I think it's been no secret at any stage of this process that that is a potential verdict that the families will invite um, the jury to, to, to determine. Mm. Um, as recently as effectively a number of months ago, um, Mr. Bullerly began uh, a crusade to assert that this was somehow a surprise to him and that this would be something that he wished to challenge. Now, this was um, dependent upon whether or not it would even be a jury. Now, we've always been clear this should be a jury. We've always been clear that, in fact, you know, to go right back to the point that Lynn talked about, the 48,000 postcards, one of the big factors in getting the inquest open was the public interest, you know, yeah. the, the people's support. The reality is the people that got this, the word is now, the people should decide. We've always said that. We don't see it as any surprise. Now, Mr. Bullery then brings uh, effectively a, a challenge to assert that the unlawful killing should be removed and that the jury should never be able to determine that uh, verdict. Now, when you look at that, it's not just cart before the horse. It's, it's, even, it's even worse than that. There, there is no cart at this stage yeah. because the reality is there has been no inquest yet. There has been no evidence. So this is effectively a criminal trial before we start, and we're telling the jury, but by the way, you can't find them not guilty. Yeah. You can only find guilty. You know, yeah. the, like, that's... The irony of this, and I have to say that, you know, it comes as a deeply disappointing development in many ways for the families because it's trauma after trauma. Yeah. And it is something that has come as unexpected in many ways. But with all of these things, there's a silver lining. And the silver lining is that um, thanks to Mr. Butterley, thanks to his crusade, we have been absolutely inundated in the last number of weeks with new witnesses and calls for support. So we says, like any of these things that, Mr. Butterley wants to take centre stage and appoint just like this. Go right back to the point. Let the jury decide in the end. So we'll have to, unfortunately, see him in court. We'll have to, unfortunately, see this challenge yeah. down. But we hope that the High Court will do what the coroner has already done and yeah. said, don't be so silly. This is a matter of course. You can go to the jury. And, like, it's important to just explain... 
a finding of unlawful killing by an inquest has no legal repercussions for any one individual. You know, it's not saying that Mr. Bollerly caused these deaths or that anyone else caused these deaths. It is a statement that these deaths happened unlawfully and that they should not have happened. Um, and so, you know, for personally, I just find it on your behalf, so utterly offensive that he is taking this challenge at this point, um, and that's before the courts right now. <laughs> Lynn, one other point I want to bring up is a, a piece of legislation that, that you introduced um, two weeks ago. Um, last, last <laughs> is it two week, weeks already? Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, I think it was yeah. La- last Wednesday. Yeah. Okay. Explain to us what that legislation is about. Um, so again, it was the, the issue around the jury and this idea that the inquest could be heard without a jury and that there was no obligation to have a jury. And then the coroner, of course, was like, that's not going to happen to me. There's going to be a jury. So then it threw up, as you were saying, nobody knows how inquests work unless you're unfortunate enough to have to, to go through one. But that juries are selected by the guardie. Like, literally, can I pause here? Because this is literally... The legislation says the guards will select the jury. Like, they literally walk outside of the building and say, you, you, and you, come in, do this. Like, a jury is supposed to be of your peers, um, and there is nothing peer-based. in some jurisdictions in the country, they have a panel. Yeah. Nobody knows how how do you get onto the panel? Who are these people who willingly put their name forward to just sit on inquest juries? It's just, it's bizarre. And they will sit and do and a they, full day of them. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So so this idea of the guard picking, but then of course with the stardust, you add into the mix that the guardie are a party to the yeah. inquest. So they're going to have to explain why they didn't secure the site and why they didn't investigate it in the way, you know, that you would investigate such a, such a tragedy. Um, and they're going to be picking the jury, yeah. so... So, I mean, initially I just thought, well, this is just mad. So I just, I'll raise it. Like, I'll just, you know, you have this system in the, in the channel that's called commencement matters. But basically it's an oral question where the minister comes in and you put the question to them and they respond. And I just thought, once you say this in public, surely they'll go, oh, no, that's not right. Like, that can't happen. But, no, we had the minister of state, um, James Brown, I think, took the question. And his response was, well, there's no legal requirement to have a jury. Yeah. So if you don't like the way it's selected, you can have no jury. <laughs> and you're, you're going, oh. So in fairness then, I think the, the, the bit of publicity around it, and I guess was that's the importance of the campaign and keeping this in the public domain, that shifted then when some of the TDs started raising it in the doll. And, and I know Mary Lou raised it with uh, Michal Martin and another independent TD raised it with the Tawnish. And they did start shifting and kind of going, oh, we're going to be talking to the Attorney General about it. And it was all just fobbing you off, but they'd accepted that, okay, that maybe it is a bit of a problem, the Gardaí picking the jury. <laughs> um, and then that's before you even get into the issue that they don't have their income protection. Um, so I just sort of made the, the, the dress. I was like, well, if you aren't going to do anything, I'm just going to introduce the legislation. So I did draft very quickly the <laughs> <laughs> legislation. Any, any lawyers in the audience, I apologize. It's probably not the most uh, elegant piece of legislation, but, um, but it did the trick because we, we went into the Shana to introduce the bill. It wasn't opposed by the government and also the letter, I think, really helped. So uh, there was an open letter and I know Vicky, you signed it and Wendy Lyon is here tonight. She signed it and we got lots of legal academics. Senator McDool, Michael yeah. McDool, former Attorney General, signed it and it was I know <laughs> that was predictable <laughs> any port in a storm <laughs> um, no so it was a letter to, to Minister McEntee and outlining all of those issues that you know you have to have a jury of your peers it has to yeah. be selected in a transparent manner so in fairness to Minister McEntee that was it's over a week ago now she, she said she had taken on board the concern she gave a commitment there'd definitely be a jury she did appreciate there has to be a selection process that's transparent and that they would look around the protection of the income. But And the income point is big because, like, how long do you imagine these, these inquests will take? I was really hoping you weren't going to ask that question. <laughs> um, I think on a conservative estimate, I think that this would take about four months. Yeah. Four to six months. So if people are serving on an, a jury for that inquest, and, like, undergoing the trauma of that that that's not an easy thing they need their incomes protected while doing that yeah so i mean that so we've given her the week 
Um, <laughs> so I, I, I'm a bit like a dog with a bone on the issue, so I'm not, I will be back in there again next week and reminding I, I actually have a request for the audience at this point. Can, can you all commit to emailing Helen McIntyre tomorrow and asking her to yes. introduce this legislation? But this is the thing, like you said earlier, when it comes to a tribunal, what can people do? This is something tangible that people can do and make that, that belief and that need for you know, an impartial jury um, and a proper inquest system that's properly funded and protected um, to give the families access to truth and justice. Can I ask, and, and we're coming to a close now, um, Selena, Louise, is there, is, is there anything else that people can do because I know everyone sitting here is full of empathy f for you and wants you to have truth and justice I think I think um uh when the start of the truth campaign with Lynn um it was a changing game completely uh for the families because um it brought um it was bringing the truth out to the public yeah. And what's happened now with the rest of Ireland, all over Ireland, is that um, the Ireland of Ireland is that there's a massive appetite uh, for the truth, and uh, especially with the young people. Yeah. And um, like, if anything, we just need the support still now, uh, especially when the inquest starts, um, just to keep updated and um, uh, just, just yeah, just to keep that support going um, because it gives us great uh, strength yeah. um, to continue because uh, we, we, we wouldn't be here only for um, the public's interest and support um, but because we couldn't believe it. There's many times we've, we were going to give up many times and like and even through it like you know um, we've had our down times mm -hmm. like you know bad times, down times and you have to keep on picking yourself up and going forward especially for my mother you know and the other families and, um, but we're not all, do, you know, do, dull and gloom and, you know, we have our lives, we have kids, we have jobs, we have, we love going out, we love our music, we love, you know, so, so we're, we're still a big part of, um, um, of life, but we, yeah. we just, we wouldn't have been able to do that without the people's help and without their support. So it's literally just to support us and keep on going. And also not to forget the 48 that died, that they were still people, human beings. They were young, yeah. 16 yeah. to 29. They were, we still talk about them every day. Yeah. Like all the families we do in our family and all the other families do. And not to forget that what would they be doing now? Where yeah. would they be? What they would, what they, what would they be like? You know, that they're still, we, we know they're still with us on the fight the whole way yeah. as well. The 48. No. And we're remembering Willie George and Marcella tonight. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah that's what it's about. It's about yeah. those people. And it's mm -hmm. about all the people that were traumatized by the event uh, and keeping that alive. Um, Vicky, can I yeah. just say, because again, the campaign, <laughs> um, there is a plan to have the sort of the truth whether it's a poster we're working on at the moment that we will ask people even to put it in your front window if you have a shop or yes. a business to put it there and, and you know if then if anyone asks you well what's that about we want everybody talking about the inquest yeah. in advance of the inquest you mean and to to really sort of mobilize behind it so yeah we, we that that's when you that finalize space. that we'll, but we will we'll yeah cover but that's, that on the that's something again. else that the public yeah. can help with yeah. putting putting it in the public space in bars and restaurants same way the postcards taxi drivers took them so yeah, yeah. Well, i want to thank lynn and dara not just for joining us but for their incredible work on this and you know the lawyer in my head always has to question why do we need an no offense but a northern irish lawyer like why isn't there someone from here that's covering it and i do think that's an important point in a lot of these conversations. Um, but thank you for your work. But can you please all join me in thanking Louise and Selena? Um, thanks, Vicky. that you know by the year's end we can come together and 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 
you know, talk about the justice that you found and the truth that you found. And we're all with you in that. Um, so thank you so much for tonight. And thanks very much. Thanks, everybody. Can I, sorry, okay. folks, can you hang Tell on me. one minute? We're not done yet. Just we're... Thank you so much. Um, leave it there.